Thanks for tuning in to the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikraman Sharmani. The podcast was started in early 2020 to share some of the ideas from his most recent book, Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in the Age of Experts in Artificial Intelligence, which is available for purchase via Amazon, bookshop.org, and most other retailers. This episode is the audio portion of a webinar hosted by Dr. Mancharamani on November 17th with Stu Friedman, founder of the leadership program at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School and the co-author with Alyssa Westring of Parents Who Lead. The video replay of the discussion is available at www.mancharamani.com. Well, thanks everybody for joining. Um, I'm pleased today to have with me Stu Friedman, who is uh, a professor at the Wharton School of Management down at the University of Pennsylvania, um, who has a new book out that's recently been released, uh, co-authored with Alyssa Westring, uh, called Parents Who Lead. Um, and so I am really looking forward to my conversation with him. I uh, did finish reading it myself, and it was a, uh, uh, a really uh, quick, fascinating, and I would argue useful read. Um, so in that sense, it's, uh, it's something I highly recommend. Uh, but let me uh, take a second to do my formal advertising that takes place every, uh, every webinar. So um, last, uh, last week, I had Rebecca Listener, a professor from the uh, U.S. Naval War College, talk to us about uh, geopolitics and foreign affairs in, an, in a Biden administration. Uh, very timely uh, conversation about her new book called An Open World. Um, and so uh, a lot of uh, positive feedback there, uh, especially since the webinar as the, the replay has made its way around through different networks. Um, of course, uh, before Rebecca, we had uh, Professor Martin, uh, Roger Martin, talking about when more is not better, uh, the, the sort of risks of democratic capitalism, inequality, um, and how maybe a, a different framework than more is uh, useful, frankly, for thinking through and navigating these chaotic and trying times. So uh, that was, and that replay is available. Um, before that, we had Dr. Katz, uh, who co-authored a book with Mark Bittman uh, called How to Eat. And uh, as those of you that have heard me uh, talk about this replay before, this was something that provided unending laughter among my kids. Um, you know, that you don't know how to eat. You have to read a book, How to Eat. We know <laughs> how to eat. Yeah, it's just chew. <laughs> so, uh, in any case, uh, it's actually a very good book. I do recommend it. Uh, before that, we had uh, Susan Helms, uh, retired three-star, three excuse me, retired three-star Air Force General who had spent 211 days in outer space, uh, including uh, five shuttle missions, uh, time at the International Space Station. Uh, and that was a fascinating conversation, the, the replay for which is available uh, as well, all on my website. Um, we had Rakesh Karana. Uh, talking about uh, students in a time of COVID, uh, education, um, as well as mental health. And uh, that replay is also available. That's had a lot of uh, parents looking at it saying, hey, how should I think about my kids during a time of a pandemic at college? Um, and then we began this fall series, at least, with Annie Duke, a professional poker player, um, someone who actually has taught at Wharton too, um, and uh, talks about decision-making and uh, how she navigated a lot of uncertainty, not only in her life, but professionally. And then of course her recent workbook that was released called How to Decide. So, uh, and then finally, of course, uh, for 1995, actually it's not 1995, it's a little bit more, I think it's 2195 on Amazon. You can get my book, which was released this summer called Think for Yourself. Um, and uh, would love any feedback any of you have for that. So with that said, let me uh, turn off the screen sharing here and uh, stop share. And here we go. So um, with that background, Stu, thanks for joining me. Uh, thrilled to have you. Great to be here, Vikram. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, so uh, before we get into the book, I always find it fascinating, and I think some of the, 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 the attendants, the attendees, as well as those that listen to the replays, always are fascinated by the background of the person I'm, I'm talking with. So how did you get into this leadership game? So I'm sort of curious. Well, uh, you know, I started out interested in leadership development. My PhD at the University of Michigan uh, in the early 80s was about how do uh, large companies select and develop their top executives. So I did a study of half the Fortune 500, talked to the, the heads of uh, HR 
uh, in those companies and systematically mapped how the largest companies um, were cultivating their leadership talent. Um, I had started out as a psychology uh, major and a literature minor and was, do, was pursuing clinical psychology and then found organizational psychology. And that's how I ended up in, well, it's, it's a little bit of a longer story. I followed my wife actually to get to the University of Michigan. If you're interested, there's some detail there yeah, that, might, that might be of interest. <laughs> but the, I spent the 80s uh, really interested in um, how you grow leadership capacity because uh, I, I discovered a lot of really interesting things about what corporate America was waking up to in the 80s as leadership development became a thing. Like today, most people understand that that's, you know, it's de rigueur. It's established as something that one ought to do uh, to grow yourself as a leader and to believe that that's possible. But, you know, 30, 40 years ago, that was not normative. Um, so I, I was just really interested in that and helping people to grow personally and to help organizations create environments in which they could grow as well. That's, that's, okay. a, that's a short version. That's interesting. So uh, some of the consulting and advisory work I, I do, I'm not a psychologist, not trained as one, uh, you know, I've read a little bit, but don't know it. But I do find some of the uh, consulting and advisory work is the equivalent of having your CEO lay on a couch uh, and talk to them about their decision making and sort of the, the sort of psychology aspects of uh, some of their, their, their fears, hopes, dreams, etc. for their businesses. Uh, but you hinted at you chased, uh, I should, sorry, I, my word chased, uh, followed, uh, went with uh, the wife. Yes. So let me, let me let you put your words in it. All right. Well, um, you know, I had, uh, I had discovered um, that I was really interested in teaching when I was in a master's program in counseling psychology in uh, upstate New York. And uh, in the second year of that program, they, they gave me, they gave me an opportunity to teach the intro psych class a section of that and that that was that was over 40 years ago now and um i just thought wow this is so much fun i got to do this i, I want to be a college professor how do i do that well i need to get a phd how do i do that well i pursued that uh and i was at the time thinking well i had worked worked in counseling psychology i'd worked in a psychiatric hospital in vermont for a number of years um and i was thinking of pursuing either that or other areas of psychology as I started to look into graduate programs. So I was applying to all different kinds of programs, social psychology, organizational psychology, which was emerging as, as, as a, an important subfield at that time, and clinical psychology. And at one of the clinical psychology graduate interviews um, for, uh, you know, an elite program on the, East Coast, on the East Coast, they had a group of finalists, 10 of us spend a day, a Saturday, just doing all these touchy-feely exercises that I now have, you know, some versions of that I do with my own students to assess us. It was an assessment day. And um, one of the other candidates was somebody who I just, you know, was knocked over by as soon as I entered the room and I saw her and I really couldn't focus on very much other than her during that day. And I didn't get into that uh, graduate program. Neither did she, but we met and we, we talked on the train ride home together, which we both were both going to Manhattan. Uh, and uh, it, it wasn't long after that I had, I had gotten uh, accepted at the university of Chicago with a full ride in their social and organizational psychology program. She was going to the, Michigan Clinical Psychology Program, which was the premier program uh, in, in her field. Um, but we, we corresponded, we wrote letters. Old school. I want to yeah. just, yeah, this is, you know, 1980. And, and then we got together in, uh, in June of that year. Uh, a couple of weeks after that, she was coming with me to the University of Chicago for the summer, because I had a job there before things got rolling with classes. A couple of weeks after that, we we got engaged, and a couple of weeks after that, I transferred to Michigan because she wasn't coming to Chicago, so I had to go to Michigan, and it turned out to be a momentous and wonderful experience for me to be in the graduate program there. 
And I, I often tell this story to students who have any interest in this. I've probably given you way too much detail on this, Vikram, more than your listeners are probably interested in. So I apologize for that. But you did ask. That's okay. Yeah. It's important because of what I learned, especially looking back at how it was, it was crucial for me to, um, you know, follow my heart and to do what I really wanted to be doing uh, with my life. And there have been a number of other episodes like that, like when I first became a father and what that, how that changed, how I thought about my career, that, uh, the, the lesson in this, if there is one, is that when you, when you try to align what you do in your life with what matters most to you in your life, things work out better <laughs> than if you don't do that. Yeah. And, and that's, that's kind of at the heart of what I teach in the, in the approach to leadership that I have been pursuing uh, for many years now. Yeah, interesting. Well, it's funny. There's a lot of overlaps, even with my own personal experience. I ended up yeah. coming to Boston because uh, at the time, my girlfriend, now my wife, uh, decided to go to uh, law school up here. And uh, so I ended up getting a job up here and then we tag teamed. And so where would I go to grad school? Well, you know, as a lawyer, she had passed the mass bar and was practicing in Massachusetts. So, all right, well, let me look at grad schools in Boston and there's MIT. And so that's sort of similar. There's a little bit of an overlap there in terms of similar logic. Um, yes, and it's quite common. Yeah, yeah. So. Was the Michigan relationship, the fact that you were in Michigan, is that what took you to Ford? I know you did a lot of work with Ford. Uh, well, ultimately, uh, no. One of my mentors there was Noel Tishi, who um, in the in the mid-80s, he was really the first um, organizational psychologist, organization theorist to spend time working on leadership development on the inside, taking a leave to do that. And he did that with Jack Welsh at GE in the mid-80s. Okay. And then, um, you know, 10 years or so later, when Ford was looking to do something similar, um, he connected me with them. Um, I had not my own independent relationship with them, but Noel was working with them. And when they were wanting to reinvent leadership development and change a number of other aspects of the company with uh, Jack Nasser, who was the incoming CEO, this was early February, early February 1999. He hired 30 of us at the senior executive level from outside the industry, uh, all different kinds of places. We were coming from strange, a strange new brew to try to infuse uh, fresh blood in, in, at the top of the organization to help drive change in the culture. So that's how I got there. Interesting. Um, well, for those that don't know, uh, Stu ran the, was it the total leadership program or the leadership development program there? Or I was the, the senior executive responsible for leadership development worldwide for Ford Motor Company for a few years. Yeah. Interesting. So talk a little bit for those, before we talk about parenting, um, your, your, the other book that I knew you for, it was the total leadership book and sort of the, the logic of uh, thinking broader, if you will, uh, lines a little bit with my whole idea of being a generalist, thinking bigger, broader, wider, zooming out, seeing it for more than just the narrow sliver that you're focused on, so to say. Uh, but maybe just describe total leadership and what you uh, sort of espouse by that, <laughs> or sort of what you... Uh, yeah. Um, um, well, thank you for asking about that. So I'll, I'll just cycle back with a, a bit more history because it helps to explain how this whole thing emerged. When our first son was born in the late 80s, uh, I had, as a graduate student, been really interested in role theory and, and the different and adult socialization and how people are affected by their social roles in the different parts of their lives and how they emerge into them and shape them. Um, that was sort of my minor as you know, I was mostly focused on leadership development and uh, succession planning, which is where I was spending a lot of time in the 80s working with companies on that. But when our first child was born, I, uh, like many first time parents, was, was kind of overwhelmed with the sense of uh, this new role that I had and was wondering what 
can I do now to make sure that the world is a safe one for, for Gabriel to grow up in, my, my baby? Which was a question I hadn't really thought through until you know, I met him for the first time. Uh, which, you know, in retrospect, I was a complete idiot. I knew nothing and was just, once again, following my heart as I thought, okay, I'm just filled up with the sense of, I need to care for him. That's my, that's my job now in life. Uh, but I didn't really know how to do that. I had, I mean, I, I had models. I, so I, I talked to my parents about this. I talked to uh, everyone I knew. Every conversation was, what do, what do I do now to make sure that the world is a safe one for him to grow up in? And when I got back to my Wharton classroom, um, some short time after that, I guess it was about a week or so um, that I took off and came back and I, I had a class prepared that day on, on motivation. And I said, you know, folks, we're going to just set that topic aside because there's something else I have to talk to you about. This was in the core organizational behavior class in the MBA program at Wharton, October 1987, just after Black Monday, um, you know, big market crash. And I, I asked them the question. What are you going to do as future business leaders to develop the next generation? Full stop, not of talent, yeah. but of people in your organization. And I just started ranting on this topic and with unprepared. Mm -hmm. I, I just, because I couldn't not talk about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the students were, uh, some of them were very angry with me and, Huh. Rest. Yeah. Like, what are we talking? First Why? of all, professor, nobody gives a hoot about your family. That's irrelevant. This is a business school. Why are we talking about children? Um, you know, what does this have to do with the case that I actually prepared last night? And now you're, you're setting aside. There was all that and more. But then there were other people, men and women, who were quite interested in the topic and were leaning forward and were like, yeah, this is a, I'm so glad somebody's brought this up. Yeah. Yes, let's talk about it. And in response to the question that I asked them, what are you going to do to, you know, to make the world a safer, better place for the next generation? How are you going to cultivate the next generation? One student said, well, you're the professor, you tell us. <laughs> and of course, I was just asking the question, yeah. which is what I have made a living doing for these last 40 years is just asking, you know, annoying questions of people. Uh, and here exactly. I was doing that again. <laughs> I said, I do it myself. I know yeah, this is our this is our business, right? Um, well, that led me to change my career. I started to think, well, I've got the skills, the tools to do research in this area. I could, I could find something out that might be useful to people. So I created the Work Life Integration Project at the Wharton School in 1991. The same year, I founded our leadership program where we were generating new practical knowledge about how people grow as leaders. We were teaching that in the core for the first time, uh, the core curriculum. And, and the Work-Life Integration Project, we went out into the field. We did survey research, large-scale surveys, and I've written books and articles about what we found there. But we also went into the field to find out how is it that people at different levels in organizations integrate the different parts of their lives in a way that works for all the different parts. Who's doing that well? How do they do it? So we, we gathered uh, consultants, academics, uh, people in government, and of course, people in organizations who were in the vanguard at the time in doing this work. And we developed a set of ideas and principles based on what we were finding in our research. And what we found is that people who are good at this, they do three basic things. They know their values. They know what's important. Mm -hmm. They know who's important to them. And they invest a lot of attention and energy in figuring out what matters to those people yep. in the different parts of their lives, at work, at home, and in the community. Yep. And then the third thing is that they continually experiment with how they get things done. So those ideas, I wrote about those in a Harvard Business Review article in 1998 called Work and Life, the End of the Zero-Sum Game. That got a lot of attention. Uh, and this, this work-life integration project, which brought together people from all over, uh, was at the Wharton School. And I was you know, a man at the Wharton School talking about children 
which made me very strange yeah. at, at the time. And so we got a lot of attention. I got a lot of attention for that. And that's part of how I got to Ford because <laughs> you know, the Wall Street Journal was covering this and others. Yep. So when, we got to, when I got to Ford, and I, in my conversation with the CEO, who my initial you know, recruiting meeting with him, scheduled for a half hour, we ended up talking for three times that. I said, look, Jack, what I'm going to do with leadership development is, is to do it from the point of view of the whole person. And he said, great. I love it. Okay, here I go. And yeah. so because I had an amazing group of people that I could bring together to help with this. We, over a short period of time, created among our portfolio of new programs, one that was devoted to what we call total leadership. And it was, it was built around these three principles that help people to articulate their values and their vision as yep. leaders in all the different parts of their lives, to connect with, to identify who is most important to them in the different parts of their lives to yep. develop the skill in talking to those people, to discover what they really needed from them and to look at their lives as a social system that has um, a number of competing and potentially compatible interests among the, and across the different parts of their lives and to engage in those dialogues with those people, very challenging, very yep. transformational, and then to develop a set of experiments that were designed to produce what I ended up calling four-way wins. And that is demonstrably improved performance at work, at home, in Self. the community, and for yourself personally, your mind, body, and spirit. And so this is the end of, of this too long story. Uh, what people discover when they do that in the laboratory of their real lives, surrounded by other people who are doing the same thing and coaching them, and they're giving and receiving peer-to-peer -peer coaching, they learn a lot about what it takes to create change that's truly sustainable because it works not just for their business life, not just for their personal life, not just for their family life, not just for their community lives, but for all the different parts. And they become more confident and in a sense more free to, yep. to pursue that kind of change. Yeah, look, I mean, one of the things that I found really great about the book, uh, Stu, and I get, we'll get to this, the, the parenting part of it, but yeah. you actually have like, like there's worksheets in there. Like, it's all right. How much do you value this versus this versus this in terms of your, your, your focus or your attention and then, or your actual wants or sort of uh, prioritization? And then how much are you spending time on it? And are yeah. you line in some way and you know of course i, I felt like a guinea pig because i was like all right i followed the cheese here we go i'm misaligned <laughs> well that's universal and, and that exercise taking the four-way view yeah. uh where you look at what's important you take 100 points and allocate those to the four yeah. different domains of work home community and self and then you take another 100 points and allocate them according to where your attention is in the different domains and then how satisfied you are in the different parts of your life, a simple one to 10 rating and how well you're performing in those different domains. And you like everyone else, Vikram realizes, hmm, there's some, there's some disconnects right. here. Yeah. What does this tell me about what I might do differently or think about differently? And I, I do that exercise, whether I'm speaking in front of 2000 people in a big auditorium or six people on a top executive team or, and everything in between, because that exercise and the conversation that it stimulates helps people to realize hmm, there are some things I can do. And that then opens up their interest. There's the exercise. Yes. So it's in case I realize this is unconventional as a way to show it, but why not? <laughs> That's it. It's really simple. It takes two minutes and it opens your mind to thinking differently. But, but to your point about you know, be, feeling like a guinea pig, when I do this, you know, with multiple people, even if it's like a lot of people in the same room, what I hear every single time, and I've now done this hundreds of times and all over the world, there's always, always, always people, the primary response to that is, wow, um, I, thought, I thought it was just me. Yeah. I thought I was just incompetent or afraid or you know, too anxious or guilt-ridden or just, you know, a failure. Yeah. And when you hear everyone else in the room saying, yeah, I'm struggling with this too, 
that in itself is a very important um, sort of intervention, if you will. Sure. No, it's very powerful. I agree. Um, I mean, part of it is I understood sort of the logic of where you were going with it. And then I still went there and I was like, oh my God, I'm still there. <laughs> um, but you you raised something earlier about this sort of work-life integration, which reminded me of a story. Um, you know, I spent some time on Wall Street after my undergrad days and balance in work-life is not something that happens there generally, um, or at least not from the version that I witnessed. Um, and I remember years later, one of my students went there and he was working at Goldman Sachs, superstar, rising quickly. He calls me up one day and he says, um, you know, Vicar, I'm moving on. I've, I've decided to leave. And I was like, oh, was it the work-life balance? And he said, no, you just don't get us millennials, do you? I was like, okay, of course not. Yes, <laughs> we know that. But what else are you going to tell me that's useful? I know I don't understand millennials. He said, we're not looking for work-life balance. I'm looking for work-life integration. I want to do something I believe in. I want my values to be expressed in work, at home, and yep. in life. And, you know, I realized it was framed in that student's eyes as a millennial, non-millennial thing. But I think it's actually true for all of us that we all would do better when there's that alignment. Yeah. I think it's across in, uh, in your book, which is great. Yes. So Balance is bullshit, as I've been saying for decades. And that's why when we started the Work-Life Integration Project 30 years ago, I was very intentional about the title and the language. And, and it, now, the, you know, what you heard your students say, it, it, that has become you know, much more a part of the vernacular. It's, it's one of the slogs that I've been pushing through and you know, in trying to change how people think about the relationship between work and the rest of life. And yeah. that's your observation, that anecdotal observation is, uh, yeah. is certainly uh, a major trend in how not just young people are thinking, but how people throughout society are thinking. And that's, that's been rapidly accelerated by the pandemic. Oh yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I wanna come back to the pandemic, but before we do that, um, you know, one of the things that I do think is interesting, and you comment on, you have a very, you know, very strong wording, which I underlined and I love, Stu. So um, mm -hmm. often the reaction I hear from other families that I've talked to, other couples, my wife and I also feel the same way, which is, you know, Stu, this is all nice and dandy. It's kind of an ideal world you're presenting, but I don't have enough time. Right. I don't have time. I need to spend X number of hours with my kids. I need to spend X number of hours at work. I have no time for myself. The workout goes out the window. And if you think you're, I'm going to go spend some time volunteering when I'm behind in these three aspects of my life, you're fooling yourself. An <laughs> ideal statement, but it doesn't work for me. Exactly. Okay. So I, and I'm just going to read one thing from your book, which I underline. Let's see. I'm still diligent. What? What did I say about that issue, Vikram? Well, you describe it as the wearisome premise that our problems are simply all about a lack of time. I think I captured it. It's very wearisome because I hear it everywhere. I'm Why so tired of hearing that. But of course, it's the natural response that everyone has. Like, I don't have time for this stuff. Stop it. You know, this all sounds great in your academic, you know, hoo-ha, but get real. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm all about the practical. You know, I, and I always have been, and uh, the the evidence that we have, I, you know, I didn't just make this stuff up. Yep. We've been studying it for, for years and have a lot of, uh, you know, data on, on what's, what happens when people take this approach. They discover that time isn't the great barrier to finding greater harmony among the different parts of life. It has much more to do with finding freedom. Uh, to uh, to make choices that are um, aligned with what you care about and with what the people around you care about. And that's why the leadership element of this approach is absolutely essential and central and crucial and how this model, you know, what we discovered at Ford and putting this together was that the tools, the ideas, the mindset that's required to integrate the different parts of life for mutual gain are the same ones that we need to grow leadership with. Yeah. Know your values and your vision, know your people, what they care about, see the world from their point of view, not yours only, and then keep trying to do things that are good for them and for you. Align you know, your interests with theirs. 
and experiment with that constantly and let them know that you're trying to do that. Well, it, that's, that's what it takes. And what people discover when they take that point of view, when they look to see, well, what can I try? What small step can I, can I take that's going to be good for my kids and my clients and my students and it's gonna serve other people beyond us in, in a way that makes me feel good and keeps me sane and healthy. What can I try? When you think in those terms, you open up possibilities that are uh, not restricted by you know, how much time you have. Because often there are ways to make small changes that can have ripple effects. Yep. And if you take, if you look, I mean, one of the most common kinds of experiments that people start to do when they realize, oh, wow, I'm not, taking care of myself. And when I talk to my spouse and my kids uh, about that, they're worried about my, my, my physical health and my mental health. And they want me to take care of myself so that I'm around to see their future and, and help to provide for it. I better do something. Well, okay. So your example about, you know, the workout goes out the window. What if, what if your family, not to mention your colleagues and your clients saw you're working out, or at least you, you saw how they saw you're taking time to maybe just walk around your neighborhood, how that was going to be a win for them. Yeah. How you were doing this for them and for you. Yeah. And you know, mothers understand this better than fathers do. Is the the evidence is clear on this. Hmm. Uh, but but fathers are waking up to that, you know, especially millennials, you know, that yeah. you need to take care of yourself in order to take care of other people. Sure. And, and once you start to think, well, okay, my, I mean, let me try for a couple of weeks doing this and see how, if I show up better as a father as a result of my working out a little bit more. And if that's true, well, then my kids, they may want me to do more working out and same for my spouse. Yep. Now, that, it doesn't always work out that way, but that's the shift in mindset is to think, okay, I'm leading change here and I'm doing this for them and, as well as for me. And that frees you up to try things that get you beyond guilt, beyond fear of you know, pissing other people off and allows you to try uh, things that might otherwise, if you're just looking at the clock, uh, you, you just don't, you, you don't see the possibilities. Yeah, no, I got, I got a great example I'll share with you here as an anecdote. Um, yeah. Three, four years ago, 2017, I ran the Boston Marathon and I'm not a runner too. I did it as a charity event, so a engaging community. Uh, my family got behind me, helped me raise some money too. Uh, clients found it interesting. And so I had a better relationship with some of my clients. I didn't know some of them had run marathons. And so yeah. they were like, oh, you know, this was my experience. What was your experience? And so it was it, truly a great example of the win, 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 uh, a, you know, all around. Um, yeah. Well, there's a great example that's similar to that in the in the book of the couple that has a child who has special physical needs, and it was some you know he had a, a rare disease their child and uh, the mom these, these so there's lots of stories as you know in the book of people who were in our our lab where we went through all these these practical tools and they did them and we studied them very carefully and that was the, you know the basis for what how we took these total leadership principles and applied them to the work of parenting partnerships, raising kids together. And this one couple who we highlight, they, uh, they, they began to see their role as parents of this child with special uh, physical needs in a way that they hadn't before and, and started to enlist people at, they, they began a foundation they began to raise funds for research on this on this illness, and especially the the mother. She she brought that into her workplace, and in a way that was kind of unplanned. But is is another just like you discovered like other other ways in which people wanted to support you as a result of you doing something that you just thought was a good idea for a couple of different reasons. Her boss started to see her as having greater you know, uh, promotion potential yeah. in her firm because of the leadership she was demonstrating in taking this initiative to raise funds for the, this disease that, that, has, that her child suffers with. Uh, so she didn't, she didn't design it for that, but 
this is the kind of thing that happens all the time when you step back for a moment and say to yourself, all right, what do I really care about? What are my core values? Where have I come from? What's happened to me in my life that has made me the person who I am and the things that I most believe in? What's the future? What's the better tomorrow that I'm trying to create with my short time here on earth? Who really matters to me? What do they really care about? Let me actually talk to them so I discover what they really care about, not what I think they care about, which is an important skill that you can never be too practiced and good at. And now what can I, what can I do to try to align that, you know, to solve that puzzle? Mm-hmm. And it's enlightening, it's ennobling, it's exciting, and it's fun. It doesn't always work, but you feel more supported, you feel more optimistic, you have a clearer eye on you know, something that you can see as a ray of light, a ray of hope, and bring others along with you. Um, and you discover things about yourself that you just didn't know before. So I hear from everyone, I don't have time for this. Yep. Or this only works for people, you know, who have, you know, certain kind of resources or, you know, gifts that they were born with. And of course, it's better if you were born, you know, with all the access to, you know, to society's riches, or you have, you know, special gifts or talents. But it was, it was in response to this criticism that I would get from everybody. Like, yeah, that's a great idea, Stu. I love your course, but come on, in the real world, Exactly. So I went and began a study. My second book for Harvard Business Press was a set of case studies. Six, I chose three men, three women from different industries. Gleaned from hundreds that that I'd done and I had students working on for a long time to illustrate how people of great impact on the world. uh, And these included in this set were Bruce Springsteen, Michelle Obama, uh, Sheryl Sandberg, and some others that you may not have heard of, um, to show how they illustrated these principles of being real, knowing what really matters, being whole, knowing who matters in the different parts of your life, and being innovative, experimenting continually with how you get things done. How they embodied those principles in their lives, how they learned them, the skills to, to enact those principles in a way that enriched their careers made them stronger, made them more confident, made them better able to deal with, you know, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, which we all suffer. Uh, so that what, what I tried to demonstrate in that second book in response to the question, come on, I don't have time for this stuff, is that you actually have a greater likelihood of, of professional success if you invest in the whole person. Contrary to the common mythology of you have to sacrifice everything to be successful in your business. It's just not true. Even though there are notable examples, especially in our culture, of people who sacrifice everything. Yep. Yep. No, look, I, I agree with you. It's sort of the it's a systems thinking approach to the sort of the feedback loops, the whole rather than the parts, etc. So in in a different domain, that's sort of it rings very true to me, <laughs> in fact. Um, so, okay, the time is not the problem. We can move beyond it. So before we go to the, some other questions, I want to drizzle in a couple of fun questions here. Please. So you're a literature major. Do you have a favorite book? Wow. <laughs> um, I think the, the book that had the biggest effect on me was uh, Joyce's Ulysses. Okay. Um, yeah, and my my stepfather-in-law, my wife's stepfather, was a scholar. He recently died. He's in his nineties, and uh, I was very fortunate to have uh, bequeathed to me his Joyce Library, which is about seventy-five volumes of oh wow Joyceana. Yeah, I just got those and have been starting to immerse myself in them. Oh, good feel. How about uh, movie? Do you have a favorite movie? A favorite movie? Oh my gosh! Or miniseries? It's fine. Whatever you. Uh, oh, well, I'm a big fan of Sopranos um, uh-huh. and The Wire, my in which my brother acted. Okay. My brother is an actor, and he was in The Wire. So those are those are two of my favorite series. Okay. Um, movies. I can't even. Uh, let me let me think about that. I'm thinking about it. Um, let me go back to the sort of the parenting 
logic and get your thoughts on another thought. This was a question that someone had sent in via email. Uh, they couldn't join, but they said they'd listen to the response. They said, listen, it's all fine and dandy to think I am time constrained, but I also realize that the logic of seeing the whole person and balancing my life is important, but I'm not in that stage of life. It's yeah. fine. I, I'm, I'll get there. I understand it. He's right, but I can't do it now. Yeah. It's just right, right now. I'm, I'm at the stage of my career. I need to put in the hours. Yeah. I'm not yet a partner at the law firm. Right. Uh, you know, kids are young. They need more time. I can't, I'll gain a little weight. I'll lose a little weight. It's not a big deal. Now's not the right time. Right. So we, we just been working for the last few years on a version of this um, model for teenagers, for high school juniors. And uh, they're loving it. And their parents are loving it even more because, it, I mean, you have to use different language, different examples, but the basic idea of you know, having support to take the courageous act of looking at what you actually care about in your life, mm -hmm. who matters to you and why they matter to you and what they really need from you and talking to them about that and then trying new ways of getting things done that are within your scope that give you greater confidence and competence and making change happen in a positive way. That's relevant as soon as, as, soon as you're a sentient adult uh, and applies uh, there is a group of retirees at Stanford University faculty who are reading this book. Uh, All right. yeah. Yeah, and, and for them to write their 15-year vision, and these are you know, men and women in their 80s, yeah. it's, it's a profound thing. Um, so my experience is that the way this model works is that it really is applicable to any life stage. Of course, the issues play out differently. And when I speak about these issues in Brazil, you know, the, the questions and the, the issues are different than when I'm in Israel or in Paris or in, you know, Tokyo, but everybody's facing these issues in some way or another. And it's, you know, what, what makes it so much fun uh, for me and my team is that, you know, it's every case is different, every situation is different because of course each one of us is, is in a different set of roles in a different social system and how we cultivate leadership capacity in ourselves and the people around us to be able to make the world a little bit better, a little more harmonious and peaceful. Uh, that is something that is a, a universal quest. And I'm, you know, what we've done here is just to, to build language and a, and a, and a, a programmatic approach that is very much of, of the moment. Although I think none of the ideas are really new. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. Another question that came in, which I think is related to this topic, which is, um, Stu, listen, I understand myself. I, I understand I need to take care of myself. I understand my kids and family. I get that. And I understand my career. I get that. These are all relating to me. Yeah. My community, yeah, it's nice, etc. Um, and maybe that affects me insofar as it helps me, but then I would just categorize that as self-fulfillment, like I'm yeah. doing me. So is there some sort of long arc of history, some of these social cycles that come into play in thinking about whether community matters? So I just personally finished reading uh, Robert Putnam's new book, Upswing, which wow. talked the I culture of the late 1800s, sort of the Gilded Age, going to the we culture, very community focused for the next 60 years, right until 1960, in the mid 60s. And then it turns back to an I culture from the 60s to the present. And we're back in our second Gilded Age. Um, communities become less important. It's more self-reliance, individual rights, individual, etc. Is there a statement about whether community gets valued more or less in this process of how you think about it? I mean, should, can I just remove that? Is, this, is that? is that helpful, not helpful? What do I do? A great question. And I, I hear it a lot. Um, and you, you brought it up earlier. I don't have time for charity work and et cetera. What my, my take on this is uh, that, if, you know, the, the more pressing matters are the ones that are right in front of us. Uh, and, and you become, you feel better about yourself ultimately. I mean, all this is about having a life of purpose and uh, meaning. And that, that is enriched when you take a broader view of what 
you know, the purpose of your life is with respect to your impact on the world. Now, the community domain uh, doesn't have to be, you know, attending church services or serving at a you know, soup kitchen. It can mean anything that relates to your impact on the world beyond your family, beyond your work. So it could be, um, you know, I take a walk every day with uh, one of my kids who um, has a serious psychiatric history and lives on our property. And we go for a walk almost every day in our neighborhood, suburban Philadelphia. And I have long made a habit with him of saying hello to everyone we see. Mm -hmm. Everyone. Yeah. He's picked that up. And, you know, over the years, people have gotten to know us. And now when, you know, it, it's not uncommon for people to initiate the hello and the wave. Yeah. So, you know, that's just one teeny example of, well, what does it mean to be a citizen? What does it mean to be a member of a community? Uh, you know, I'm not saying that I'm not advising that people do that. Uh, and it's different for me as a man privileged to be able to reach out and say hello to everybody without feeling a white man, feeling afraid of people feeling like I'm attacking them. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I have, I have a lot of privilege in that role, but that's, a small instance of how your community can mean a lot of different things. And so that initiative. Yeah. Um, it's very funny. One of my, one of my best friends, he lived in the Boston area for years and he used to love the fact he's like, look, I've actually started saying hello to my dry cleaner. I get to know him when I drop off. And, you know, now that person knows me at the pizzeria when I go get a slice, they know I like it with pepperoni and the, you know, sort of yeah. made a greater comfort and it makes my life a little bit more, happy like i'm just interacting in this fulfilling way where it feels like there's some reciprocity and some exactly and then if and then if i were to ask you or your friend or you would ask me about what i do how does that affect your work yeah. does that make you a better leader a better teacher a better scholar i mean how, how does that affect who you are in your work world yeah that's a weird question but that's back to my first my earlier story yeah i get it my value is in asking that question of you. Mm -hmm. And my experience is that when I ask that question of people, everyone has an answer. Yep. yep. You just have to be pressed to think about, well, gee, yeah, if I feel a little bit more connected and belonging to you know, my home community, that does influence how I think about who I am when I show up in a classroom or at a client site. Maybe not explicitly, but just thinking about that changes my 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 identity. Yep. yep. And that's the that's why it's useful. That's why when people say, "Okay, I've got an idea for an experiment. It's going to help me. It's going to help my kids, and it's going to help my business." I don't really care about community. And I say, back to the drawing board. I I need you to come up with some way in which that's going to have an impact on the world beyond your family and your work and yourself. So just Let's talk about that. And I have never, ever, ever, and I've had 10,000 of these conversations. I've never met anyone who came up with a complete blank. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's there. It's latent. That idea is latent. Sure. When I first got to Ford, I inherited a small team, about a dozen people. And I had just written the, the Harvard Business Review article on work and life at the end of the zero sum game, which is one of the first you know, big articles in this field. Uh, and, and published a book called Work and Family, Allies or Enemies, which was the result of this big study that we'd done. So I arrived as the head of leadership development at Ford, you know, a lot of hoopla, uh, and people on my team were like, oh, you're the work-life balance guy. We can ask you for anything. So they all came to me and like, okay, I need this, and I need Fridays off, and I got to get home. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> Yeah, I have a real boss now for the first time in my life. You're working for me and for us. If you want to be off on Fridays, why don't you come back to me with an idea for how that's going to help our team perform in, in ways that matter to us? Yeah. Uh, you want to write a Sonata this year? That's awesome. How does that help Ford Motor Company? Yeah. You want to get an MBA at night? 
Fantastic. I want to support that. How does it help us? Yep. And, and I, so I, I made it a point of asking all the people reporting to me, since it come up with something that you really want to do. So I, I made that like a requirement. Mm-hmm. What do you want to do beyond work that matters a ton to you in this next year or so? Great. How's that going to help us? Yep. And are you willing to talk about that with the rest of our team when we meet every week to, you know, on updates? Sure. So we go around and say, okay, Bikram, you're training for marathon. And we all want you to do that because of all the reasons that you've laid out. And so, you know, you'd have one of your teammates say to you, hey, Bikram, you're supposed to be running 30 miles a week. How'd you do last week? Yeah. And you'd say, well, I only got to run twice, you know, eight miles each, so 16. So, you know, your colleague, Ahmed, might say to you, hey, Vikram, what is your problem, dude? Is it, did I stand in the way of you running those 30 miles? Did, did I get in your way? Do I need to, how can I help you? So yep. he's putting pressure on you in a good way. Why? Because he's got his issue that you want to help him with. And we found that yep. it's, poss- it, it's useful to think in terms of all those different domains and to build in peer support where everyone sees that they're winning. Sure. No, no, look, it makes a lot of sense to me. I, I think it's very powerful. So we're running out of time, Stu, but I've got a couple other questions I want to yes. squeeze in here. First is technology. I mean, you call it technoference, I think, in the book and some yeah. other now it gets in the way. I can't get rid of it. I mean, we, this thing is here. It's not going away. Okay. So what do I do? How do I, mi- I mean, I'm pretty good, I think, although I'd love to hear what my family says about it. Okay. I, I go home, I leave it in my uh, home office and that's it until after dinner, or maybe check it before bed, but I leave it in my office. That's it um, there. So that I think that's something I had to work to, but I'm curious what generic, we don't have to make this uh, about me and my techno addiction. <laughs> um, but, uh, but sort of what do we do about technology and broader than just technology, just given the, in the interest of time, how about things like social media? I mean, the kids, the impact social media is having in terms of, uh, sort of perceptions of my doing versus other people. Everyone's posting positive things. My life is up and down in the real world, but online, everyone's having a grand old time. No one's posting anything negative about their lives. Am I just a bad one? Am I the one that's unlucky? Am I the one that's not having the great time? Uh, so technology and social media, curious how they fit into your framework and, and guidance you give us on that. Well, it's wonderful questions. And again, you, you, they're great because they're universal and everybody's struggling with this. Yeah. Um, one of the more common kinds of experiments is, is the one that we call focusing and concentrating. There's, there's a whole bunch of different kinds of experiments that I describe in Total Leadership and then a different set that we describe and illustrate in, uh, in the Parents Who Lead book that are, that are useful for families to do. Uh, but one of, the, one of the common ones is just negotiating agreements that you try out on uh, when, when you access technology and when you don't, creating some boundaries around that. Um, and just, you know, small, simple things like, okay, we're not going to have our phones on the dinner table. Uh, for many people, that's a radical shift. Let's just try that a couple nights a week or, you know, once, you know, in a, in a week and see, see the impact that it has. Um, and, and so, you know, it's useful to not just try that without first understanding, well, what's important to you? Why, why does this matter to you? What do you, what do you need this for? How does this help you? Um, and, and just to become a little bit more mindful, a little bit more deliberate. I mean, all of this is about raising your consciousness about what matters and where you invest your attention, which is your most precious asset as a leader and helping your kids to do that and to do it in a way that works for all of you. Um, so there are people now experimenting with, uh, uh, you know, time and space boundaries. Now that everyone is you know, not just working from home, but living at work, it's all one place. And especially if you live in close quarters, you might have to you know, sit in a closet for an hour just to be alone. Right. And so, you, you know, if you, if that's something you want to try and people are doing it, you might say, look, I, what I'd like to try on, you know, a th- Thursday afternoon is just to sit 
in a closet for an hour and because I think that's going to help me you know, be calmer, actually get some thinking done. And, you know, you should see that in my being a little bit less of a jerk uh, for the rest of the day. Um, can we try that? Because it's not just for me. I'm doing it for us. You, you buy that. And, okay, let's try that and let's see. And, again, you're thinking there is I'm going to do something that helps me, but it's I'm doing it for them. So there's no one best way uh, to, to manage those boundaries. What is essential is that you are conscious and deliberate about it. And you think of yourself as a leader trying to help other people and then to make small changes that are good for them and good for you. As for social media, um, you know, the, the way that I have learned to contain it is I, it's not on my phone, hmm. not on my phone. Interesting. Yeah, just gone. I, I learned this from Cal Newport uh, who's uh, a, a great theorist and very practical writer on the subject. Very practical. <laughs> yeah, he's got a, a brand new piece in the New Yorker about his stuff. And it, anyway, he's been on my radio show a couple of times. And one of the things that I've learned from reading him is, uh, yeah, take, take social media off your phone. So I check in on my computer twice a day on my various social media accounts, and that's it. And that, that has really changed things. The other thing is to help your kids understand, you know, that it's, you know, it's a lot about self-presentation. There's research that's pretty uh, strong and clear showing that people become more anxious, feel more isolated as a result of, you know, what they see with, you know, the positive false self-presentations that, and the sense of, uh, you know, personal failure when you can't compare it to somebody else's Instagram. That is ubiquitous. Um, you know, I, I, I foresee in the years to come, I mean, nobody can predict really, but the, the backlash against, you know, what social media has done to our, our world, to our societies is growing so strong that I think we're gonna see like a new phase uh, that, that changes and disrupts the invasion of social media in our lives. At least I hope so. Yeah, it's interesting. I hope so too. Uh, I've definitely sensed uh, a lot of the uh, the anxiety, even in students that I teach, uh, and you know, generally, um, it, it's it's unfortunate. Uh, but but I what we're seeing in the pandemic, with people, you know, I hear from a lot of clients and students, people, you know, especially those who have teenagers at home, people saying to me all the time, you know, I've gotten to know my kids and they're they're pretty cool. Yeah. Like okay, that's great. Joe, I'm so glad you know your children. Now. But, you know, I don't, I try not to be facetious and snarky and judgmental. Can't help it actually, but I, I try not to be. And of course I'm guilty of the same thing. Uh, you know, it's easy to fall into that. But what we are discovering is the value of, you know, quality time, yep. which is real. And the, I've done some research on this, it, you know, quality matters. Not, not more than, you know, quantity of course counts too, but if you're present and you're paying attention and you're spending time together, you realize there's a lot of value in that and you try to make more time for it because it's so enriching. Yeah, yeah. So did I answer your question about that? Yeah, um, you did, you did. Uh, look, I feel like we've got, I still have a couple other questions I had on my list, including, you know, comparative weighting of family uh, sort of prioritization in the workplace, Europe versus the US and sort of policies around family medical leave and family leave and paternity policies, et cetera. But I do want to be sensitive to time, um, you know, in the sense that um, we've been going okay. through hour. So I think we're going to have to keep some of those on ice uh, and maybe have you back or come back after uh, some period of time uh, and address those other questions later. But um, this was fabulous, Stu. So thank you. Thank oh. you for the time. Enjoyed the conversation. Very insightful. Um, and I'm just going to say to everyone, the book is worth its weight in gold. Uh, take your time, uh, get it and make your spouse read it too. <laughs> oh, it's definitely better together. It's written it's written for people who are in parenting partnerships to yep. work on these things together, whether you're married or not, uh, whether you're you know, single, uh, you know, we, we all have the challenge uh, and, and need the support of other people and trying to do what we can to, to make the next generation stronger than ours and better able to deal with the, 
the, the opportunities and the challenges of the world to come. Vikram, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you, Stu. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikram Mancharamani. As a reminder, the video replay of today's episode is available at www.mansharamani.com. Finally, if you've not already done so, we encourage you to subscribe to the Think for Yourself podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify. Thank you.